in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. First Thessalonians chapter 4, I'm going to read for us in verse 13 through 18. And if I have to pause and drink water throughout the service, I apologize ahead of time. I got a scratch in my throat and I just, anyway, can't get rid of it, so... Paul writes this to the believers in Thessalonica. He says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, or the word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of, the arch, of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now and we just pray and ask you, Lord, would you in your gracious kindness open our eyes and our hearts to your word, illumine our minds and our hearts so that we can see the beautiful things that you have in your word for us, the wonderful things that are here in this text. And so God, we ask for your help now through the power of the Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Over the past several weeks of Advent, we have looked at and rejoiced in the faithfulness of God's promises, made and promises kept. We looked at on Genesis 3, 14 through 15, where God promised on a, a dark day that the Messiah would crush the head of the serpent. In Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3, we explored God promised that the Messiah would bless the people. And then Isaiah 7, 14, we're told that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. And then in Jeremiah 31, 31, we looked at how God promised that the Messiah would establish a new covenant that would be written on the hearts of the people. And then last Sunday, we looked at in Luke chapter 2 that God promised the Messiah, this Messiah would be the king who would redeem his people from their sins. A.W. Pink said this, he said, In all ages, God's people have had a hope set before them. And that hope has always been centered on Christ. 
In all ages, God's people have always had a hope set before them, and that hope has always been centered on Christ. And that is what Paul said to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 1.20. He says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. All the promises of God are fulfilled in Christ. All of them. And yet, there's still one more promise to be kept. And how do we know that it will be fulfilled? He who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. Until this promise is faithfully fulfilled, we remain, and I think you will identify with this, we remain in this broken, fallen, painful world. The sin and pain of this world causes us grief. We experience sickness. We experience the loss of loved ones. We experience broken relationships. We experience, in essence, the effects of sin on this world. And in light of this, we're often left with more questions than answers. Especially in grieving. Especially in grieving the loss of a loved one. We're prone to ask questions. What happened to him or her? Is she or he alright? Where is he or she now? Will we see him or her again? We have those questions that come to our minds. In 1957, the renowned 20th century theologian John Murray preached the funeral for William Matheson, who was a long-time pastor of a church in Ontario, Canada. Murray preached from this text we're looking at this morning, and this is what he said to the believers of that church. This is his introduction. He says, Death is always an abnormality. And death is an evil. Death brings sadness and it is always compassed about with mystery. It is an abnormality because it it was not the lot of man as he was created. It's an evil because it's the wages of sin. It brings sadness because it separates us from the ones we love. It is mysterious because we know so little about the unseen beyond. And then Murray goes on to say this. He says, The Scripture provides us with enough information to warn the ungodly and to comfort believers. Not enough, indeed, to satisfy vain curiosity, but enough to satisfy faith. And this morning as we look at what Paul writes to the believers in Thessalonica, that's what he's doing. Providing enough to them to satisfy faith. Christians can be confused, can be bewildered, and even fearful of what happens when we die. That was the condition of the Thessalonian Christians that Paul wrote to. In many respects, this church was a thriving church. And it was a church that Paul had great affection for. The power of the gospel was on full display in Thessalonica through these believers. Paul mentions in this letter their faith, their love, their hope in Christ. 
He talks about how they were growing in Christ's likeness and their love for one another, but it appears in chapter 4, verse 13, that there were some who were ignorant of certain things, especially considering those who had fallen asleep. There were Christians in Thessalonica who had died since Paul had been there. And this left many questions and concerns in the hearts and minds of the believers. It seems that they were wondering, perhaps because the Christian had died before Christ returned, that somehow they would miss out on the blessing of his return and the resurrection. Questions like, would they be resurrected? Would those who are alive at Christ's coming get a better deal than the ones who had died previously? Was there any hope for those who were dying, or was there only sorrow for them? Paul knew that one of the great causes of fear in this matter is ignorance. So he sets out to answer their questions so that they would know the truth. And according to verse 18, be able to encourage one another with what he was saying. The answer to fear for the Christian is knowledge. Knowledge concerning Christ and His work and His purpose. Notice in the text that Paul does not want them to grieve as others who have no hope. We have to make a a distinguishing factor there between grief and hope. Paul's not saying there's no room for sorrow when a believer dies. Nor is he saying to them that they should never grieve. That's not what Paul's saying to them. The issue, here is the issue, and you must grab this this morning, is not whether or not there is sorrow when someone dies. The issue is whether there is any hope in the sorrow when someone dies. Does that make sense to you this morning? We have countless examples of grief in Scripture, and I can think of none greater than the example of Christ. You know this. As Jesus was told days before that his friend Lazarus was sick. You remember this? And you remember Jesus delays his going to see Lazarus. And by the time Jesus gets there, you remember, and he's reminded of this by Mary, if you would have been here, this wouldn't have happened. And Jesus there watching, it's interesting, go back and read in the text as Jesus observes the people, the crowd, and their response to what has happened. You remember this? In John eleven thirty five, we're told that Jesus wept. It's been a running game now of what's the shortest verse in the Bible? Every John eleven thirty five, Jesus wept. Folks, I would contend to you this morning that John eleven thirty five is one of the most powerful verses in the Bible. That Jesus cried. He had sorrow. He felt the pain. He felt the separation of his friend. And here we have Jesus weeping, Jesus the resurrection and the life, yet He's at the tomb of Lazarus crying. He mourned because of death. He had the power to undo it, but still He mourned the great and terrible enemy. Jesus felt the pain of death. Octavius Winslow wrote about this in an essay he wrote called The Sympathy of Christ with Man. Listen to what he says about this. He says, Here we have bereavement, 
and the affection that soothed it. Here was death and the essential life that conquered it. Here was the grave and the resurrection that emptied it. Here was the melting, weeping sensibility of man in the closest alliance with the divine majesty and commanding power of God. What a study. The creator of all worlds, the author of all beings, the upholder of the universe, raining tears of human woe and sympathy upon a grave. It's a powerful assessment. Another example of this sorrow we find in Scripture is found with Paul when he writes to the church at Philippi. Paul, as you remember, as he writes this letter, he's writing from prison. And he mentions towards the end of Philippians, his friend, brother, co-worker, Epaphroditus. He says, I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Now listen to what Paul says. He says, indeed he was ill. He almost died. But listen to what Paul says here. He says, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also. Lest I have sorrow upon sorrow. Death, sorrow, is a real thing. Even the death of a Christian. But what Paul says here to the Thessalonians is that in natural legitimate sorrow over death of their brothers and sisters, he does not want them to mourn as those who have no hope. So is there hope? The believers were beginning to think there was not. They were beginning to wonder if God had abandoned his people, if he had forsaken his people, they began wondering, was there anything we can look forward to for them? I mean, you think about it, friends, this morning, death without hope is awful. You agree? It is awful. And I'm sure all of us in here have experienced, especially if you're a believer, you've been to the funeral of one whose condition of their soul is either unknown or it's very known that they were outside of Christ when they died. And it's a terrifying place to be. It's a sad place to be. You can see it on the faces and expressions of the people as they gather for the funeral. These types of funerals, they leave us to sorrow with no hope. They leave us to sorrow that way. So is there any hope for the Christian? Where is hope to be found? Well, Paul says here in our text... That was this introduction, by the way. <clears throat> Paul says here that our hope is to be grounded in Christ. It's to be grounded in Christ. Things that are known, things that are certain, Paul points out to them. For the foundation of Christian hope and sorrow, in the face of death of loved ones, in the face of our own death. You understand this. And so the first thing I want you to see in our text this morning as we look at it, 
you're taking notes, I want you to think through this. First thing is believers are united. Believers are united in life and death with the crucified and risen Savior. They're united to Him. Notice what Paul says in verse 13 and 14. Don't miss this. He says, but do not... But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. In other words, what Paul's saying to them, we don't want you to be stupid. We don't want you to be ignorant about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Now notice what Paul does. He says, for since, all right, connecting this, for since we believe that Jesus, what? Died? And rose again, even so, what does he say? Through Jesus, what is God going to do? God's going to bring back with him those who are asleep in Christ. Through Christ, in Christ, in union with Christ, is what Paul is pointing out to them. So, here's what I want you to hear this morning. Death does not dissolve the union between Christ and his people. It doesn't dissolve it. Death cannot undo the fact that the believer is in Christ and Christ through the Holy Spirit is in the believer. Nothing can change that. Paul describes the believer who dies as one who is asleep, which implies, here's what it implies, it implies there's an awakening coming. They're asleep, but at some point, they're going to be awake. Does that make sense to you? In Acts chapter 7, we have a similar phrase used of Stephen. You remember when Stephen was stoned? Stephen's preaching and declaring Christ, and, and the, the people are enraged against him. In fact, the text says they, they were grinding their teeth against Christ. And you remember what they started doing, and you remember who else was present? They began to stone him, laid their coats at the feet of Saul, who's... Paul, writing this letter, right? They stone him. You remember what Stephen saw. It says, and when he was falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice and said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, here's what Luke records, he fell asleep. He fell asleep. Just prior to this, you remember he saw Jesus standing in heaven. And now we're told he's asleep. It's a bit of unusual language to describe death. Remember, he saw the risen Christ and now he's asleep. The nature of the believer's death does not alter the reality that when we die, we fall asleep in Christ. So whether the body is burned or scattered on the earth does not change the reality that we're asleep in Jesus. Their souls are with Jesus. Paul makes that very clear. That to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. One commentator said to sleep in Christ is to be is to retain in death the connection that we have with Christ. For those that are by faith engrafted into Christ have death in common with Him, that they may be partakers with Him of life. 
So death can't end union with Him. Paul says in Romans 8.11, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Romans 8, 28 and 29, And we know for those who love God, all things are worked together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to what? The image of Christ. And so Paul's saying, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and that God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of Christ who died and rose again. So our assurance is grounded in that life. In the life and death and resurrection of Christ who is the head of His people and who is the pattern for His people. And so the life and death of Christ shows us that resurrection is possible. It's possible. It's not beyond the possibility of God. Look to Christ. God raised Him from the dead. And Paul says in Romans 4.25, He was delivered up for our trespasses and God raised Him for our justification. Our standing with God is in the living Christ. He has been vindicated and demonstrated as the Son of God whose righteous deeds and righteous death and atoning blood has God's stamped approval. Paul says in Ephesians 1, he is the living head. In 1 Corinthians 15, 20, he is the first fruits of the harvest. First fruits meaning that the harvest is coming. It's guaranteed to happen. And as Christ is glorified now, so we will be glorified then. This is God's plan for our lives. If we are believers, we are united with Him with a bond that death cannot shatter. Second, I want you to see this. Christ Himself will return in glory and with all authority, to meet His people. Notice what he says in verse 16 and 17. He says, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. And what's going to happen? The dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. You remember, Pastor Matt read it to us early in the service. Acts chapter 1, you remember that whole scenario where Jesus is with His disciples and He ascends into the heavens and they're standing there stargazing. And Luke records this, and, when they, and while they were gazing into heaven as He went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And so what we have here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is Paul now is filling in some of those details 
of what that looks like of Jesus' coming. He will descend just the same way He ascended. He will be heralded, we're told, by this mighty shout and trumpet. Commentators are divided on the exact meaning of this. Some argue that they're all three separate things that are said in the text. But some argue that Paul's just putting emphasis that this will be unmistakable what's taking place. What we do know is it's going to be loud. There's the voice, the trumpet, there's the parting, and there's the coming. It's going to be loud. It's, it's not going to be missed, is what Paul is indicating to us. It will be glorious. It will be a time where Christ will appear in all His majesty and all His honor, and He will meet His people in the air. His people will be, in a sense, His welcoming committee. One commentator said this, when speaking of believers meeting the Lord in the air, Paul may indeed have more than mere reunion in view. The term he uses to describe that union was used in the ancient world to refer to the official welcome offered to a king or to other high dignitary when he visited a city. The leading officials of the city would go some distance outside its walls and to meet their visitor before escorting him in to conduct his business. It may well be that Paul, this is what Paul has in mind, that the believers are joining him in the air as a prelude to the coming judgment that Christ will bring on the earth. The third thing I want you to see here in our text, is all Christ's redeemed people will together enter the eternal joy of resurrection life on that day. All believers will. He says, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. How do those who are asleep come with Him? That's the question. It kind of boils it down, summarizes it to this. Scripture is very clear on who we are as an individual, who I am, who you are, what we're composed of. Scripture is very clear about. We have body and we have soul. Is what the Scripture tells us. We're made up of. And so Christ will bring with Him those who sleep with Jesus. He will bring those who are present with Christ by soul. And body and soul will reunite. The body will be changed and fitted for the new heavens and the new earth is what Paul is telling us. The dead will rise first, and then those who are alive will remain, will be caught up with them, and those who died before the return of Christ will not miss out on anything. They won't miss anything. They're not forgotten. They're not abandoned. It's what Paul is assuring them of. In 1 Corinthians 15.51, Paul speaks of the divine power of this moment. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. 
For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed, Paul says. There is a day coming when in an instant death will be undone and all of Christ's people will be changed and body and soul reunited. See, it's here that victory over death will be finally demonstrated. It's here. With resurrection joy, we will always, Paul said, be with Christ. This is the moment when the hope of the Christian is realized. We will one day obtain this if we are in Christ. That's what Paul holds forth for the believers who are grieving. But what about the unbeliever? I found it intriguing as I studied through this text this week that Paul does not mention the unbeliever here. What about the one who is outside of Christ? They don't experience this resurrection joy. Ephesians 2, Paul made very clear that all are dead in their trespasses and sins and they are an enemy of God. Following the desires of the flesh and Satan. Paul goes on in Ephesians 2 to say they are people who have no hope and they are without God in this world. So those who die without Christ or who are alive when He comes back, will be forever fixed in that condition. Without God and no hope. The writer of Hebrews is very clear of what they can expect, and that is a fearful expectation of judgment. John 5, verse 29, we are told all the evil deeds that they have done will go into resurrection of judgment. Hear me this morning. To be dead in your sins is terrible, but to die in your sins is to be without hope. To be dead in your sins is terrible, but to die in your sins is to die without hope. There's only sorrow for the one who dies outside of Christ. Think about it for this text amid such beauty and hope. There's a reminder here that there are those who will not taste this. Who will not taste the sweetness of this event. But will rather find it bitter and displeasing. There's no hope for those who die outside of Christ. The unbeliever has no part of this resurrection unto life eternal with Christ. So this morning, if you're here and you're outside of Jesus... I would plead with you to come to Him, to turn to Him, to repent of your sins and find your rest in Jesus and taste and see that He is good. Paul goes on to say, which brings up natural curiosity in our minds, which is what he covers in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians. Paul, when's this going to happen? When's this going to take place? 
He goes on to talk about things that are unknown and uncertain, namely the times and seasons. In other words, when these things are going to happen. He says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 2, now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come how? Like a thief in the night. If you knew the thief was coming, you'd be prepared, right? Paul describes it that way. We don't know when he's coming. It's uncertain. We don't know. Jesus said, his, his, his disciples asked him that very question in Matthew 24. Lord, when, when will we know these things are going to take place? And what did Jesus say to them? He did describe to them many things surrounding it. But he never gave them a time in which he would return. We know that his return is uncertain. So let's focus on the things we know for certain. We know that believers are united in life and death with the crucified and risen Savior. We know that. We know that we can be certain that Christ will return in all His glory and with all authority. We know that. We know and can be certain that each and every one of Christ's redeemed people will together enter into the eternal joy in heaven together with Christ. We know and can be certain that those who are outside of Christ will not experience the eternal joy of resurrection life with Christ. Instead, they will face God's wrath for all eternity. We know that for sure. We cannot know and we cannot be certain when this will happen. But what we do know is that it will come. It will come unexpectedly. And it will come unstoppably. The labor pains, as Jesus described them as, have already begun. The contractions have already started for the end of the world. And when the heavens open and the clouds part and the shout is heard and when the voice rings in the air and the trumpet sounds, there'll be no delay, no postponement. The destiny of all will be fixed that day. The things we do know are a great comfort to those who are in Christ. That's why Paul says in verse 18, encourage one another with what I'm telling you. Christian, what happens to you when you die You go to be with Jesus. Paul says in Romans 14.8, For if we live, we live to the Lord. We die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. We are the Lord's. I love the Heidelberg Catechism. I love the first question it asks. What is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I'm not my own, but belong, listen to this, with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, Christ secures us in life, Christ secures us in death, Christ secures us beyond death. The last promise to be fulfilled is His coming.
Oh, what a glorious day that will be. How should we live, though, knowing that he's returning? Peter tells us, what sort of people ought you to be? In lives, here he tells you, holiness, godliness, waiting, waiting for him to come. That should be our life. That should be our testimony. I want to conclude with just five things I want you to remember. Five things I want you to take away this morning with you concerning the second coming. The second coming is not just some abstract thought. It has deep theological implications to our lives. It does. And so I want you to just jot this question down. What should be our disposition to the second coming of Christ? What should it be? What are some things that we need to remember? I want to give those to you. These are five things. Maybe there's more. These are the five I came up with. Number one, we must remember that the fulfillment of Christ's first coming is the hope for his second coming. The fulfillment of Christ's first coming is the hope of his second coming. I want to draw you back to how we began this morning, remembering how Christ fulfilled all the promises of the Old Testament. He fulfilled all these promises because he, was, he who promised them is faithful. And since these promises were fulfilled, why would we ever think his return wouldn't be? He's coming again. It's certain. Second, we must remember that we should be eagerly and expectantly waiting for the return of Christ. Eagerly, expectantly. Paul points this out in Titus 2, 11 through 13. Hebrews 9, 28. Those who are eagerly waiting for him. And then at the end in Revelation 22, verse 20, listen to what John records. He says, he who testifies to these things says, you know this? Surely I am coming. Soon. And the response to that is, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So I want to ask you this morning, are you waiting eagerly and expectantly for Christ's return? Is Revelation twenty two twenty your prayer? Do you want Christ to come? It's recorded for us in Revelation twenty two twenty that Christ is coming again. It's important to note the response. The response, our response, God's people's response should be, Amen, come. So the heart of faith responds to the promises made by God with desires and prayer. You hear that? We desire Christ to come and we pray to that end. Yet I'm afraid believers in our culture, especially in the 21st century, are found enjoying life and the comfort and ease rather than desiring and praying for Christ's return. Additionally, I would say those material comforts we experience have spilled over into spiritual complacency. The earthly comforts often diminish our yearning for 
for Christ to come. Too many young people seem content with their material pursuits while older adults are preparing for retirement and too busy enjoying retirement to ask Jesus to come. We should be so eagerly and expectantly yearning to see Jesus and be made like him that that eclipses everything else in our lives. The reason why we should yearn for him is because of who he is and what he has done. Third, we must remember that we are to pursue holy living in light of the second coming. Paul makes this very clear throughout his letters. In fact, he makes it clear in this letter in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 where he calls upon the believers in light of the return of Christ to live as sons of light, sons of day, not of those who are of night and darkness. So in anticipation, we should prioritize certain things in our lives, namely the spiritual disciplines. The means that God's provided for us to grow in Christ's likeness. We should desire His Word. We should desire prayer. We should desire living in community with His people. Charles Spurgeon preaching on 1 Thessalonians 4. Here's what he said. He said, every Christian should seek to be more and more with Christ. More and more. For the growth and glory of your life lies there. Do you want to have heaven below Be with Christ below. Do you want to know at once what eternal bliss is? Know it by living now with the Lord. Now. Fourth, we must remember that one of the blessings of His return is we will be with Christ and His people forever. Not only is this a blessing for us, This is what John Murray called the final fruitage of Christ's prayer in John 17, 24, where Jesus prayed, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. John Murray says that's the final fruitage of the prayer that all the believers then are gathered together seeing Christ and enjoying Christ and are with Him forever. Fifth, we must remember that He is returning to save those who are His. He is returning to save those who are His. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 9.28 says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. What's he going to do the second time? Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He's coming to save his people. Knowing this should comfort believers that we will one day finally and forever be rescued from this fallen, broken world. However, this should also stir an urgency in advancing the gospel. Knowing that Jesus is returning for those who are waiting for Him, we see all around us there are people who aren't waiting, who aren't expecting. You tracking with me this morning? 
They don't know to wait. Someone must tell them. Someone must go. How will they believe unless someone tells them? Folks, on the side of this, there's a missional aspect to this, of the return of Christ, that we must advance the gospel. We must be making disciples so that others will be eagerly waiting for Christ to come. Amen? So let me ask you this morning, are you waiting? Do you want Him to return? Or would that just really mess up all your plans? It's a legitimate question. I had to ask myself, thinking about this. Can I really pray that? Do I really want it? How about you? Maybe this morning you're here and you're outside of Christ. You don't know Him. You heard me earlier call you to repentance, call you to Christ, come to Him, know Him, follow Him, desire Him. I would call you to Him this morning. And so this morning as we stand, as we sing, I want to pray. And you respond to however God's stirring in your soul, however He's stirring in your mind this morning. You respond to Him. Would you stand to your feet? And lead us in a word of prayer. Lord, we just come to you and thank you for your word. Thank you for the comfort your word gives to us who are in Christ. Thank you that we have so much to look forward to. Oh, what a day that will be when the dead in Christ will rise and we will gather together in the air to be with Jesus forever. It's hard to even comprehend. But as I said early in the sermon, I'm reminded that what Murray said in that funeral sermon, that Lord, you've given us enough to satisfy faith. And so this morning, Lord, we look to the text and we, as your people, were satisfied with what you have said. And so, Lord, we look and we ask today and would pray, Oh, Jesus, would you come? Would you come? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.